Welcome to Fosbury Flop, a podcast for the crazy ones who are not fond of rules. A podcast about the geniuses who change the world. Evolution depends on adaptation. Those who best adapt to their environment survive. If you have an adaptive advantage, you have a better chance of surviving and passing it on. Sometimes, these advantages are achieved by those who are different, those who have undergone a mutation compared to the majority, in nature, but also in sport. Veronique Richard is an expert in performance psychology and teaches us to be more adaptable to our competitive environment and creative, because being ready to change always helps. Often, her means to achieve it are environments to encourage athletes to navigate through discomfort and grow psychologically from it. Veronique gives us her lessons as a mental performance consultant of Cirque du Soleil and member of the National Generation 2032, a coach program that aims to increase Australian coaches to contribute to future Olympics. Veronique, uh, Richard, welcome and thank you very much for, for coming to Fosbury Flop. Thank you for inviting me. I have heard, Vero, that, that you are a very creative person. But also from <laughs> you, I heard from, from first time the term or the concept, I would say, creative potential, in which you explain that it's part of genetics, no, of the genes we have, but also the environments in which we are exposed to. And I would like to ask you, if you look back at your path, at your life to become a creative person, who do you blame more? <laughs> blame? <laughs> I don't think I, I would blame any... You mean between gene and environment or you mean yes. a person? Between gene and environment. Um, it's an interesting question. I think I have probably a good interaction between both. Um, so I think, yeah, when you look at my family, I think everyone has a little bit of a creative spirit. So maybe there's something going on in our family gene tree. Uh, but I also think that some of the environment, uh, that I was exposed to, especially, well, I was a figure skater. So figure skating already is a art sport and then being exposed to, yeah, I think diversity. I, I started as a musician and then I did a lot of sport, but then I did an artistic sport um, and then I went into academic. So yeah, I think the diversity of the environment I was exposed to is definitely yeah, probably a reason. I, I, I don't know who told you I was creative. I don't know if I am, uh, but yeah, it, it's if, if it would be a little bit of an interaction between both. Do you think you are? Uh, yeah, I think I, I mean, if we take some of the creativity theory, one of them is the idea that creativity is domain specific. Uh, there's a big debate in the literature uh, if creativity is a general ability or if it's a domain specific one. Um, I think I have probably some of the general creativity trait like open mindedness. Um, flexibility, capa capacity to adapt, but I also think I have very domain-specific um, creativity. Like I, I think the way I combine um, different sciences could be considered creative. But if you would see me in a kitchen, you would 
you would not say that I'm creative. I eat very often the same thing because I have no idea what to eat. So I'm just doing those few meals that I know how to do and that's it. So yeah, I'm not creative everywhere, but in my professional life, I would like to think I am. That was a good explanation. In your your paper, uh, Creativity on Motion, I I realized it, or you uh, mentioned many, I would say, factors that influence our creativity, you know, like culture, cognitive skills, uh, and so on, no? So now I would like to ask you, the influence you had from your family of creativity, it's not just like, okay, I allow you to create, be free, but many times the behavior they have, how they treat you, if they make feel more confident or, or less, also influences. So how has this been, the influence of your family on your... Uh, my dad was an inventor, I think I can say that. Uh, so he used to uh, sell computer in the early 80s. And then that lasted and was really successful for about 10, 15 years. But at some point, the big stores, like I don't know what it is in Spain, but in Canada, like uh, Staples and stuff like that started to sell computer. Hence, it became a bit more difficult for local shop um, to sell computer at at a competitive price. And my dad was also a hunter and he he decided to with his, um, how do you say that? Not technology background, but electronic background. He decided to uh, create for himself at the beginning um, a little like kind of technological thing that was tracking when the deer were coming to the feeding point. And then he just evolved his invention into a product that was sellable and that became also very popular in the hunting world. Uh, This idea that you could record, basically, it was a motion capture. And nowadays, it's nothing very fancy. But in the 90s, like early 90s, it was quite uh, fancy to think. And then later on, when the um, uh, digital camera started to be popular. He attached the digital camera to the system. Hence, people could really see what kind of deer, if it was just a squirrel or something else that was going to eat at the spot. Anyway, so that's a little bit like my dad and he was experimenting in the house. We had little thing everywhere that were capturing our own motion. So we could test if his thing was working. He wanted to test it in the cold. So we had stuff in our uh, freezer. This is my friend would tell that story because like in the summer, if you wanted to go get a popsicle, um, I don't know if you go or ice cream, let's put it this way in the in the freezer, maybe a picture of yourself was going to be taken because by opening the door, the motion capture would take you like take a picture of you. Anyway, that that used to be a little bit of a my friend thought it was really funny. Um, so that's that's a little bit like the environment that I grew up with. But I think if I if I add one more thing, my mom and dad, but my mom was mostly in charge of us. She she allowed us to experiment whatever we wanted. So if I wanted to play basketball, then it was okay, let's go and play basketball. And if as long as I was finishing the season, if I started something I had to finish, but if I wanted to change, if I want to explore something else, um, 
And that I think probably helped as well in the diversity of environment I've been exposed to. It's really curious. And, and for me, what is most is that maybe, I don't know if it's a paradox or like many times in order to uh, work on creativity or allow somebody to be creative, it's like just indirectly. I mean, probably you seeing your dad trying many things, changing the home environment. This doesn't invite you to be creative, but you as a child, probably if you see that or if another person see his dad uh, making paintings or doing other things or, or making feel able to do whatever he or she wants, then this impacts on creativity, even though maybe the dad or the mom never mentioned the word creativity. Yeah, yeah. I think it was really implicit. Like I never, yeah, it was never like intended for us to be, to be creative. It was never forced. Um, like I said, I was exposed to multiple, like I did elementary, elementary school and high school and a classical music school where we had also many opportunities to create our own music. So I think that probably have something to do with this. My grandparents were a musician. Actually, I asked to go to this school because my grandfather was playing the violin and I wanted so bad to play the violin too. Um, so little things like that, to be honest, I've never really thought about it. So I'm just like thinking as we speak <laughs> or speaking as I think. I'm not sure which side it goes. And okay, oh, that's clear. But now I would ask you, I, I think we would agree if we say that being creative is an advantage, but why? Why those environments, those genes that made you creative person, no, are an advantage in this world? It's good to be creative. Yeah, I think it's like any skills. I think it's also a little bit situational. I think there's a time and place where creativity can be very useful. For instance, if you're trying to solve a very complex problem that has no predefined a solution or no single answer to it. So when it's super open, um, so that is, of course, where creativity can come into play. It's a little bit tied to adaptability as well. Um, so how when you faced different situations, even in your daily life, it doesn't have to be always the big eminent creativity. So again, there's this theory that says like there's many level of creativity. Yes, when we think creativity, we might think of those uh, very famous figures that change the world. That's one aspect of it. But it can be everyday creativity, which is, hey, you face a problem, you forget something and you need to find another solution uh, to achieve the task at hand. And then you combine creatively two or three things and you end up successfully handling the situation. So that could be a very small or smaller expression of your creativity. And then, of course, uh, there's this creativity also that is associated with the arts and with the production of something beautiful or aesthetically appealing, which is another also interesting form of creativity, um, which, again, might be a kid that just draw for the first time, uh, which they call mini C, uh, the first time something they think it's the expression of their creativity. Uh, and you can have very proficient artists that will amaze the world by their creation. 
I also think creativity or this expression of creativity is important because it's tied to well-being. Uh, we are creative being. We like creating uh, something in our environment that appeal to us. So I think having the freedom to express that can also, um, yeah, be a good or benefit your well-being. So there's different reason. But at the same time, when you need to sit to write an exam and there's a correct answer, <laughs> maybe um, your creativity, if you don't want to comply to this idea of a multiple choice exam where there's just one answer that is correct, or at least that will give you the points, well, maybe then your creativity would get in the way. But maybe also it means that it's not a right domain for you, you should probably go in something that is a bit more open-ended. It was very interesting also the concept you mentioned about adaptability. Isn't mm -hmm. it the same as creativity? What is, what is it? No, you have worked it and researched it a lot, no, with your research? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like the concept of adaptability. Um, I would not say it's the same. Um, Adaptability could also not necessarily involve anything creative. So, I mean, you could adapt to, if we take a sports situation, you could adapt with a very well-known answer. You don't have necessarily to respond to the situation in a novel and effective way. But if like creative adaptation, I think it's a form of adaptation not saying that all adaptation are creative, though, if that makes sense. So I think there's a little branch that for those that are able to see situation in a very flexible way and are able to generate original solution, it can give them an advantage. Um, but I would not say that it's, it's necessary to adapt to a situation. In, in my opinion, this is the highest advantage that creativity brings you know that it gives to you much more chances to adapt to the the, yeah. the problems you you face i like and it can be in no sorry Bernie. no no no. go ahead no i mean it can be in a novel way or not but at the end you are able to survive in a much broader range of situations yeah some would argue that sometimes though so now flexibility, we're talking more about a breadth, a wide repertoire of action, for instance. But some would say in certain situations, having a wide range is not necessarily what it takes. You need to go deep. So it's like you have this one like very narrow focused um, solution and you dig and you dig and you make it perfect until it's like... And, if you're lucky and you always face similar situation where you're so proficient in that answer, it might take a while before you face a situation where you're like, oh, now I don't have any more answer to that. So it depends on the kind of like, even if we take sport as an example, of course, in sport where you never know what will be in front of you require much more this broad kind of uh, skill report, repertoire, or it could be a huge advantage. But some sport would argue, like if your task is to run on a straight line, 
there's not a lot of things. There might be things that will happen, but most days, if you know how to run very, 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 very well in a straight line and all your muscles are well-trained and everything biomechanically work well, yeah, maybe being creative for that specific task is not necessary to be very successful. I argue, though, with people that are doing those sports that expressing their creativity outside of running in a straight line could be a good way to balance their well-being. But that's another story. This is an argument I often have with sport. That are we, we, we will talk about it. What I wanted to ask you, it was if you see uh, being adaptable, adaptability or being creative, creativity as a skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think creativity. Go ahead. No, then my question was, sometimes if, if you tell me or if you if look at my path five years ago, for example, if somebody tells me you have to work on adaptability, I would see that work adaptability as marketing. Like, mm. okay, adaptability, I understand. But at the end, I have to work on jump. I have to work on dribbling in basketball, kicking in soccer, whatever. So how do we make this transfer of this abstract term of adaptability or creativity in a daily day, uh, basis? Yeah, I definitely think you can improve skills to become more adaptable or more creative. I, I, would, I would take those two things separately. So it's interesting because we see skill as necessarily there needs to be kind of a teachable moment. But I think with those uh, kind of skills, just enriching your environment to allow people to be exposed to more situation where they will need to adapt. And it's not the normal like teaching skills, like I'm giving you a technique to jump higher. It's more like I'm exposing you to an environment which might present situation that you are not expecting, that are novel, that are ambiguous and that you might need to adapt to. But you will find your own solution because I will also give you space uh, to be able to explore different solutions to adapt to this. And by continuously being exposed to an environment like that, you implicitly develop skills to adapt better. But like, I'm not sure the most adaptable people could necessarily verbalize what those skills are. Uh, they just were exposed to so many uh, different kind of situation where adaptability was needed that they found a way to reorganize, basically. If we take dynamical system theory, you shake a system, it will find its way to readapt by developing new pathway, new strategy, new way to keep the order. So it's a little bit more a learning that is implicit, a learning that is embedded within your environment. It's not necessarily a learning that you like, you can teach like another skills that you might think about. And a consequence, no? Like of what you said, being exposed to different environments, different challenges. So then if you are good on that and you succeed, then you have this consequence, this skill of adaptability. Hmm. Yeah, I think we we could see it like that. And of course, it's a bit of a trial and error, right? 
Like maybe you will try a skill, like you will try something once and it will not lead to a successful outcome. Hence, you're like, okay, that was not the best idea. So what, what's next? What can I try else? And, and again, if you are in a safe environment where it's like the environment is exposing you to, yes, those challenges, but you feel that you can explore without being judged or be, without being afraid of consequences like being deselected uh, of the team or things like that. Like you really feel that it's okay. We know we're putting you uh, in front of different challenges, yet the goal is to develop your adaptability. So we'll allow you, like it's okay to make mistakes, basically. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time you're trying to adapt to these new challenges. Well, you have... Now, when you have said this thing about environment, which are safe, that you can deal with the pressure of being deselected or you can make mistake, it just came to my mind that you work on Cirque du Soleil. Mm -hmm. You work with, uh, I, you would say, well, artists, yeah. but in which they are in an environment in which if they just do a single mistake, they are uh, out or... Uh, I'm I'm always so how how does how does that uh, situation that contradiction I don't know how to say it but I find like, it's funny that people it. I think it, circus captured people's imagination so much that they think that the slightest mistake leads to the biggest consequences. Those people are probably the most adaptable people that I've encountered. So I will give you an example of one of the circus discipline that usually captured the imagination of people, high wire, okay? It's really high and those guys are walking on a wire and they do all these crazy things. And I was on one of the show Kuza very recently, just before Christmas, and I asked them, how many times do you fall? And, or I asked someone actually, how many times have you seen them fall? And the answer was never. And I'm like, oh, really? And when I asked the artist coach, how come? Like never. He's like, oh, because we're training to fall. We're training to make sure that if we lose balance, we know how to catch the wire with our hand, with our legs, with like whatever, like with our elbow, whatever, like they learn falling technique. So like, it's not true that if they do the tiniest mistake, like it's over. They have quite a huge range of skills and they even practice mistakes to make absolutely sure that if something happened, they can recover from it. And they push the, the boundaries quite far because not only they practice to fail or practice mistake, but they practice to act it out. Like if it was normal that Ooh, I fell and I'm hanging by my elbow, but I'm just going back on the wire like if nothing had happened. And if you would see the behind the scene of a circus show, there's not one show that doesn't have mistakes or that the audience are actually... You mean, this is You mean shows, not trainings? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's mistakes. Okay. They don't train much. I was, I was so once when I was little in the Cirque du Soleil in Barcelona. And, and I walked off at the end without even noticing or doubting about a mistake or something that went wrong. 
it looks I from mean, the outside like a, a very linear, very closed uh, process in which all is very well synchronized. It, it is, but it doesn't mean like, don't get me wrong. These performers are expert in what they do. They are yet it's also so difficult. So even like mistakes, because it, it's not a competition, right? It's, it's just a matter of pleasing an audience. Very frequently when I'm sitting in the audience, the applaud if the artists make a visible mistake. So let's take a juggler that drop a ball. Okay, this is obvious that it was a mistake. But let's say the juggler try his trick, he drop a ball, and then he try it again because they always, with the music, they have an agreement that if they miss, they will try another time because it's live music, so they need to have an internal agreement. Um, and if you try a second time and he hit the trick, the audience is even more into it because the fact of missing showed the audience how difficult a trick is. And then when you repeat it right after and then you nail it, the audience is like, yes, he got it. Like a little bit of an empathetic kind of connection. Like, oh no, poor guy, he missed it. Oh man, he got it. Yeah. And then everyone is like, Every single time an artist make a mistake and is able to repeat the trick and get it right, the audience reaction is always stronger. Like if there, yeah, there's a connection, there's something happening when you see someone make a mistake, like, and then kind of a support. Also, the music has to adapt. Yeah, so the music with Cirque du Soleil is live, meaning that, like, the musician, so there's all, on all show, there's a band lead. So this is kind of the conductor kind of thing. And um, so it's it's an agreement. Like if something happened, uh, the band lead will instruct the rest of the musician to repeat, like, let's say, I don't know, it's a 16 time trick. So then they will say, okay, they will like, they do a little transition and then they go again and then they will repeat the music. So yeah, yeah, it's a, like you were saying, it's, synchronicity and every parts is together that's why they are highly adaptable probably the musician i always try to go sit with the musician when i'm on show they are probably the most adaptable because they need to like the musician they play their music they have their part they look at the show at the same time to synchronize the music with the artist and then when something happened they need to decide what are they doing with the music? Are they playing this again? How long will they play this, play this again? And then it's the artists that decide when they will throw the trick. So they need to be super attentive to make sure that they will do the specific music that goes with the tricks at the right time. So yeah, the musicians are amazing on a circus show. It's probably the most adaptable of all. Do you think that in order to be adaptable, one has to be... Uh, very familiar or at least does does don't feel bad with uncertainty with sudden changes with yeah i think it also it goes back to what we were discussing earlier exposure to these like yes ambiguous situation challenging situation novel situation uh, unpredictable situation all those kind of factor of course like if I take circus artists, they've a lot of them grew up into these environment, and they are just it's 
for them, it is it is what it is. Like they have such a broad range of possibility that they just play with whatever is coming, and it's it's quite fluid. It's I don't think it's so effortful at at their expertise level. Of course, in their journey, at some point, it must have been more uh, effortful. But it seems that all of this is okay. Yeah, man. For me, it's curious. Uh, look, me uh, watching circus from the outside, I thought that the success was about having a very strict plan, stick mm -hmm. to it and doing it very well. No, And you realize that probably the best shows are the ones in which everybody adapts better to whatever it happens. It is a mistake, a change, whatever. But I don't think this point of view, it's quite a spread in a sport. Yeah, and I'm happy that you think that circus is very well. Like it's this is what we want the audience. Like this is what the goal is that you guys feel that it's effortless and magical. And but it's if you get the chance, go see that backstage. It's always interesting. In sport is um, well, in sport it's very different. I think the, the the first thing that makes a huge difference is like the competition. Like the fact that, so circus, they perform like in Cirque du Soleil, most of the time they will perform 10 times a week. So it's two show, two show per night, five nights a week, especially for a resident show on average between eight and 12 times a week, let's say. In sport, the Olympics is every four year. And for some sport, it's a one performance thing. And that's it. So you prepare all these years. So it's it's a little bit of a difference. So I feel that context of practice make them a little bit more rigid. And like if there's so much to lose that you don't want to risk anything. So it's a little bit more risk aversive than in the circus world. Like they can try in two hours. Like they can try again in two hours or they can try the next day or like it's a little bit more flexible because performance is happening all the time. Yeah, you made me think on, on the our obsession we coaches have on having everything planned, all in the periodization on in the Excel sheet. So then you have your own mental cage, your own mental prison perfectly, but then you miss, as you are more rigid, not flexible, many chances to succeed, to break the plan and make a show a better solution solve the problem, the game situation in a more functional way. When I work with coaches like that, my first step is to integrate in the plan a moment of flexibility. So like destroying the plan will never work. Like you need to start small, but just sometimes I'm asking them if they can allow athletes to explore and be challenged in different ways in warm-up, for instance. Like we don't have to go in the sport-specific activities, the core of your training, but could we play around with warm-up a little bit? So instead of warming up every single day the same way, can we challenge them to find different ways to warm up their legs or increase their heart rate or show us different ways to do dead bugs, like ab stuff, like whatever it is. So this has been a way to slowly make like little moment 
a little bit more flexible, a little bit more open instead of dictating everything, just allow a little bit of openness. And sorry, going back again to the to Cirque du Soleil, I was very curious about uh, how does a sports psychologist expert work on, on Cirque with mm. all these artists? How would you describe me uh, what you do or your basic goals or needs you need to solve in that team? Yeah, well, at Cirque, we are two mental performance consultants working with the company and the company uh, has many, many, many artists. So basically not everyone. I don't see everyone. We don't see everyone. It goes, uh, it's a referral process. So when an artist feels that optimizing their mental skills or having strategy to optimize their well-being is something that they would need. Uh, the staff on show uh, would put a request through the reference system or the referral system and I receive them. And then um, that means the artists will have access to one-on-one -on -one session online. Um, it's online because they are all over the world. So it's very difficult to be at the same place than they are. And then depending on the need of the artist, we will set uh, some goals. So it could be anything from they want to increase their motivation. Okay. Like at some point, repeating the same show can become a little bit uh, boring. So they want to increase their motivation or it could be an anxiety performance anxiety problem, they made a huge mistake in that, or they were injured and now they're a bit anxious to go back to their full performance. Could be uh, managing thoughts or using emotion effectively, can even go into more um, interpersonal skills like communication, leadership. Uh, so it can be anything like that. And then depending on the, like, the situation and the goals that we set, I can see an artist four times, but I can also see an artist 12 times. Like it depends how we decide to go together. And then when we have achieved our goal, we just let them go. And uh, yeah, I, I we use the open door policy. So of course, if they have some needs later on in the future, they can come back. But most of the time when we have achieved our goal, then they go by themselves. Uh, hopefully with more skills. And so that's the online version. And then when a show want to do some promotion and prevention, so promotion of mental skills, uh, prevention of like mental health, well-being, they can uh, bring us on show. And we do some workshop and then we do one-on-one -on -one as well. And we hang out backstage. So it's kind of informal. It's just making mental skill, mental well-being, mental health be something that we can talk openly about and that we develop skills to make sure that, yeah, we, we optimize this side of performance. And, and in order to, for example, I agree that maybe with motivation no, or, or with more general issues, it could be done online on one-on-one. -on -one. But what do you think about the, the need of representative, uh, representativeness if the problem is more related to the show, to their mental skills when they are performing some activity. We, uh, you, feel, you feel it can be done. Sorry, you feel it can be done 
just like in an office, online? Do you feel any problem? Would you do it different? Yeah, of course. It, it per- For me, like I've worked um, with gymnastic and with trampoline, uh, which are very, for many discipline of circus, a, a kind of a similar um, kind of movement. And the best possible option is to do it in person and to design training activities in order to develop the mental skills they need to be able to achieve their physical like movement goal. Uh, what we try to do, so it happened a few times, especially when it's a case of anxiety about a movement or even a little bit close to the lost movement syndrome, like the cannot twist anymore, or there's a movement that they don't want to do, we try to work with the coaches on the show. Uh, So that is a possibility. So instead of me working only with the artists, I will work with the artists, but I will also work uh, hand in hand with the coach. So of course, my, again, my best, the the best solution would be to upskill all coaches so they have a very strong uh, mental skill foundation so they can design uh, the training activity themselves. Some are intuitively very good at doing this. And then they just come to me to have a little bit of a check. Oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And they're doing great. Uh, and some others, a situation might uh, be the opportunity to start developing so yeah so of course if i could um i would but this company is is it's super big if there would be a mental performance consultant on every show it would be fantastic um maybe one day and did you have uh, uh, any time a situation in which you said uh, sorry but that cannot be worked it comes to my mind the situation of roberto baggio the the soccer player that I think he promised to to his dad that he would win a World Cup. Mm-hmm. And he was an, an extremely good uh, penalty shooter. And then he made all the penalties in, in his life, a very high uh, rate of accuracy. But when we had to shoot the penalty on the final of the World Cup, he missed. Mm-hmm. And I ask you this because other coaches, Danny Bayard from Waterpolo, which had also pressure situations, they, they, they tell me that the pressure cannot be worked. Like maybe if an artist feels pressure somewhere, like you just have to perform more, go to the show. I don't know. Oh, I think, I mean, those kind of pressure, it, I think there's a difference between can you work on skill that would help you face a situation like this high pressure or can you reproduce the pressure? If the what they are saying is it's impossible to reproduce this pressure, I would tend to agree. Like world penalty shootout, it's a once in a lifetime. I don't know if that was the first world of uh, World Cup of this um, player, whatever. Um, it's it's true that it's hard to reproduce, but if you've developed the skills it doesn't mean it will not be stressful. It doesn't mean that you will not feel the pressure. It just means that you will feel you have strategy to handle it. Uh, It's the same with circus artists. Yes, sometimes 
Some things happen. Uh, they do high risk thing. There can be injury. Sometimes they go through big injury. And then when they come back, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's apprehension. And they want, especially those that really want to come back and this is their life. Of course, it's, it's difficult to, it, it takes time. Um, I am of like, sometimes I know I'm not the right person for them, but then we always try to find there's so many psychological specialty and expertise that if I realize, so a good, a good example is if I realize it's a very anchored trauma, I'm not a trauma therapist. There's people that are doing, there has been different uh, evidence-based uh, intervention for that. So then we would recommend that they go and seek the support of another kind of expertise, which this is also something that has happened uh, a few times. Now, do you think that the mental side mentality is the most important aspect on performance? No, I don't think there's a most. This is something I hate when people are like, it's 80% mental and it depends on people. Some people, I, I've worked with many national team in Canada. Some athletes will come and develop their mental skills and they put a high priority on that and it makes a big difference for them. And some will never come and see me or very rarely. And they are super fit, like they focus on their physical um, aspect and for them it seems to work fine and they do maybe less I think it's we should and that's something I hope sport could become we should just the messaging should be about finding your way to optimize your performance so whether it's a combination of nutrition psychology physical uh, skills technical skills tactical skills depending on the sport, artistic skills, and how much time you want to invest in those different dimensions, like social skills. I think it's also super important and we don't, in team sport, it could make a difference if um, it or not. Emotional skills, like some, just, just find your own recipe instead of following a pre-established one. And again, that, that, that is where maybe creativity come into play as well. The athlete that are able to detach themselves from those pre-established expectation of this is what you must do to achieve success. And they take a little bit of a step back and ask themselves, what do I need to do? Like self-awareness, like what, what makes me feel better? What makes me perform better? What, like, you know, just, but unfortunately, because we come into a sport environment and the recipe is so tight that we're like, oh, this is what I have to do. And then the expectation and the pressure. And if you don't do this, you will not make it to the top. And so then you, you, you stop thinking about, or you, you disconnect with your own self. So uh, yeah, I, I would really wish that we allow more freedom to find your own way. Oh, I just ask this because, uh, when I started coaching, I thought that success was based on technical and tactical abilities, no? And now I am involved with maybe more, I don't know if you would agree, mental sports like tennis or paddle, which is this trending sport, this tennis with walls and glasses. Mm -hmm. And I can see, well, 
most of the of the high performance say that mostly is mental this ability to struggle but then i am working with kids and kids that play well and i see that they can understand the game they touch the ball perfectly but i think it's mentally i i'm not expert i don't know there are things that cannot be that make a mess their ability to suffer just to make proper decisions to see challenges, to accept it, to put themselves in problems, to be self-aware of what they need to do, of what they don't, of what they need to improve. And I don't know if it's the most important one, but here my unpopular opinion is that is the, in my context, is the one that would make a biggest difference in most of my athletes. I think sometimes it, it seems that it is the most like important because since it's not everyone that are necessarily working on it, then it can be a differentiator with your opponent. Whereas like, and like I was arguing, I was having a very interesting conversation with a rugby, um, a rugby person here. And if you look at all the professional team here in Australia, I'm sure their physical load and task will be very similar. Like, everyone like it's really well known what they need to do then the technical well again it's throwing a ball it's running like it's a similar technique um the tactical well they see other team they start knowing what they're doing anyway so and then there's like let's say this mental aspect which is like oh well this this not everyone does it not everyone invests in it necessarily. Um, so is it just because I'm sure in 10 years, like 20 years from now, almost no one was investing in it. Now it's kind of a 50-50, even maybe a little bit more than that. And in 10 years from now, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will. like. It will be rare to not have a full-time mental performance or sports psychologist um, embedded into a sport environment it's still not 100 of the time and i'm sure it will start younger as well like we will uh develop athlete with this uh mental skills ability which some places are already doing an amazing job at not just starting when they reach the, the top but educating the athlete from a young age which yeah it's uh I, i'm just i just think that if we really take all the factors involved in performance, I don't think there's one more important. There might be one more important for a specific person, but overall. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, just I'm surprised at why a young coach that starts in the course, in the coaching course can learn all the technical actions, but any coach can know, for example, works like about mindset of, Carol Dweck or Elia Kram that could also help kids so much. But well, I just remember Djokovic that said, everybody hits good forehands, everybody hits good backhands. Tennis is a mental game. You did also an, an intervention in tennis with Australian coaches. Am I right? Uh, yeah, we did a very, very small project here with Tennis Australia. It was for younger, so that was more about creativity and adaptability. Um, so basically it was a three day camp, um, with 13 years old, uh, elite tennis 
players of the best 13 years old in Australia, uh, 16 of them. And we tested them before, and then we did a three-day of creativity development, which was everywhere. So that was a very, very good camp where the staff of Tennis Australia were just so on board and open to... So not only we were doing warm-up, we were doing tennis-specific creativity drill, we were doing creative cool-down, we were doing creative everything. So those kids or teenagers, I should say, um, were just asked to... Like, we're challenged the whole time by this idea of uh, creating something new, something different. So, yeah, that was a very good experience. We're, we're now um, analyzing the data, so I don't have yet the result of the project. But just by being there and talking with the kids, I think it was a pretty successful uh, camp. And how were the, the tasks and the works you did? Because... Also talking with, I could talk with Mari Carmen. She was surprised. But in a sport like tennis, in which there is the so spread the belief, this reductionist belief of these technical fundamentals of no, of hitting the forehand, the backhand in the same way, one million times. And until you don't do it perfect, you can't create, which this is completely opposite to this creativity. How was your intervention? Uh, that was, we, my God, we did so many things in three days, but it's interesting that you say the racket because one of the things we did is like, at some point, everyone had to change racket. Uh, they use different balls, like there's balls that are a bit heavier, a bit lighter, a bit smaller. We use all kinds of things. So they were always destabilizing. Of course, like even at 13 years old, they already have a little bit disbelief that they need their racket to play well. So, of course, when we're like, okay, now you guys are all switching racket, you guys like take this, um, it, it creates at the beginning, um, it creates, it's always the same. It creates some kind of resistance or questioning, uh, but why just go with it? You will adapt. And a few of them, we were asking them at the end, did you at some point forget that it was not your racket anymore? And some of them were like, yes, I forgot. Like, it, of course, if you just think about this, you're like, oh, my God, it's not my racket. I cannot play with that kind of racket, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but yeah, so to answer your question, different kind of activity that we're going from uh, creative warm up. Um, so one day we arrive and we're like, we don't have any equipment and you guys need to take whatever is in your bag. Come with um, elastic foam roll balls, whatever they had in their bag. We put everything there. We split them in team and they had to create their own warm-up uh, with the material that was there. There was a little bit of like different constraint to it. Uh, we did... So at the beginning, it was... I often do the program like that. At the beginning, is a lot about fluency. So the, like stimulating a wide variety of movement, then flexibility in different direction. And then we did a lot about moving with emotion. Um, so we integrate emotion to the training and we see how the body moves differently. If you're more in the angry emotion, if you are in the super calm, super happy, a little bit disappointed, the more bluish emotion. So, yeah, I mean, it would be very complicated to explain you the whole program because it was a yeah. very uh, thorough, I feel, uh, program. But I'll be happy to send it to you um, 
if you want, when we'll be a bit more. Of course, of course. For me, it's curious how the the coaching style can also in, impact on this creativity, as well as we are talking in your in your family or your childhood. No, the coach that has me as a coach, I gave a very specific tips, focused on the same thing, being able to do it well. And now, as you say, no, it's a different ball. Just adapt. Or me as a coach, which I had a very strict routine of warm up on the trainings or what I should do in each day, then ha, if the players know what they what they will do, like how do you ask themselves to change something later? I have a friend mm. which is soccer coach, which is called Adrian Market, and and he's a, a methodology director. And he the Friday goes to the her, uh, his coaches and says, "Okay, I know that you will do free kick situations." just a small game and some passes because there is this belief in soccer that uh, one day previous to the game, you have to do that. So then with this coaching style, you are not saying anything, but you are just impacting the whole creativity, this this whole ability to adapt to the players. Mm. You really need some... Um good supporter to be able to do it. Like, of course, I don't know every sport very well. So I really need the head coach uh, to be on board with me. In that case, it was Nicole Chris. She was just like completely on board. She knew of the principle and it, it's just a few principles that we apply all the time. And she was able to design, to really design interesting tennis specific uh, creativity activity. And which principle, yeah, sorry. Oh, I mean, we, we use different principles, like um, being able to explore. So variability, like changing all the time, use force in um, quotation marks, uh, players to never repeat the same, um, my God, the same action. Uh, constraint is another one. Uh, problem solving, freedom, noise. Noise, it gets a little bit, it depends, like, of the level so noise would be like coming well we did something let's say with two tennis ball okay now two tennis ball it creates a little bit of of noise in the system because they need to have their eyes tracking two different balls which is completely unusual of course there's only one ball all the time so that was an example of noise thing so those are the principle it's it comes i use a lot a lot of um skill acquisition principle but I just push them to another, like sometimes to another level. So then it's not just about acquiring the expected skill. It's about developing new skills or novel kind of skills. You know, at the beginning, I told you that yeah, uh, you were the first person that I, I read mentioning the, the concept creative potential. But now I have to admit it also that you were the first person that I listened, I had a favorite moment in life, which if I'm not wrong, is when a person decides to let go and be who they are. Why <laughs> this love for this moment? <laughs> Where did you hear that? <laughs> Where did you hear that? I, I heard that in a podcast. I, I, I can't remember the, the exact source. <laughs> I will put it in notes. Oh, you're funny. But I was surprised um, by... Sorry. Okay. Oh, no, it's just, so I do an activity that is called movement improvisation. And I do this with different kind of popu population. Um, 
but I do it often with coaches. Uh, I've done it a lot with elite coaches. And of course, like when I start introducing, so movement improvisation, I take creativity principle, let's say breaking pattern of thoughts and behavior. So we know that because we repeat always the same time, we create quite well anchored pattern of thinking and pattern of behaving. For for, for many reasons in life, those patterns are very useful. It makes us very effective, um, makes us go to from point A to point B. One of the movement activity I do in order to kind of embody this concept of breaking pattern of thoughts in action, we do um, walking with substance. So take a second and imagine a group of, I don't know, 10 to 15 elite coaches that are coming to the movement improv session to develop. So this is the part with, where it's, I call this coaching with creativity. So to develop their own abilities to be creative. And then the first thing they are introduced to is that we will walk in the room like if our body was made of different substance. So we start by walking normally and I put a music all the time. I always put music and then suddenly, what, how would you walk if your body was made of water, of ice, of sand? And then I create kind of a, this scenario. But of course, because it's different from what they are used to do, some, not most, just some of them will resist. I call them the resistor. And almost all the time, the initial resistor are those that will end up benefiting the most from the intervention. But I need to be able to create that moment where they will just let go of their resistance. And when that happened, and I work quite hard in these things to create the environment, make people like... um I know people are uncomfortable, so I should not say that I try to make them comfortable, but I try to make them understand their relevance and importance of just engaging fully. Because at the beginning, they're a little bit like, eh. So that's probably why I said that one of my favorite moments in my job is when someone that was resisting very much just let go and end up engaging and not caring anymore about, about what they look like or what other will think of them or how silly this whole thing is, or, you know, they just let go and engage in the present moment for the sake of the activity. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite rewarding seeing people do this step forward. Is this related with their own creative expression? Mine, you mean? No, I mean of a person, when a person decides to let go. Yeah, I think in some ways it is. I've heard different things over the year why they've decided to let go when when I get the chance to chat with them afterwards. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely um, agentic, like it's their own choice to resist or... And I that's one of the things that with experience now I'm embracing the resistance. I'm not fighting against it. So when someone resists, I will not try to convince. Of course, 
I'm working and creating this environment and allowing everyone to progress at their own rhythm. But like I'm embracing it. Like I'm not seeing this against me, against the activity, against what the, I'm just like, it's okay. Resistance is a response. It's sometimes a little bit annoying, but <laughs> it's a response and we need to go with it in order to um, allow the person to find their way a little bit. I'm exposing them to something. They have the right to answer in any way they want. So, yeah. For me, that uh, that uh, the explanation you did that I heard for you, give, my, give me an explanation of something that happened to me. Last August, I started to work in a new club, a uh, high-level paddle club, beach, but they had a way of working and different beliefs than mine. So mm. at the beginning, I was feeling a bit weird and trying to work as they, as they wanted or as they believed. And one day I had a, a talk with one of my colleagues and I saw that we had different ways of working, but at the end we saw paddle in from different uh, from the same glasses and that day i went to the court and i did a completely different training based on what i believe on how i understood that paddle had to be worked and just a little bit with the attitude okay if you don't like it uh, kick me out fire me like no problem what? and i have a lot a lot a lot of good memories of that day because it was something changed mm -hmm. and then i yeah. started reading regrabbing and the creative act that he just yeah. published and yeah, I yeah, start yeah. seeing in the network many, many other uh, people defending the self. I even read uh, the David Chase, the Sopranos creator, saying like mm -hmm. nowadays nobody uh, takes risks. So then we only have uh, average products. And I link this to that. No, if more people would be uh, mm -hmm. able, would be brave, would dare to express their self, to be who they are, to live or coach as they are then they mm -hmm. would have an extremely big advantage. Yeah, after the coaching with and for creativity program that we implemented with the Gen 2032 here in Australia, um, one of the coach development uh, lead told me that one of the coach after the program finally felt that it was okay to coach while being her own self, that she didn't have to transform herself to fit the mold of what a coach should be, but she she was allowed to create her own. That was that was a, a very good feedback because that's exactly to your point. Is there one way of being? Hopefully not. Yeah, but you can see the, even in athletics the story of Vic Fosbury and his Fosbury flop, or many uh, soccer players. The the actual yeah. number one of paddle that they just succeed and reach the number one breaking with everything just because they want to be who they are. It's what a uh, naval says, naval Ravikan, that nobody will beat you at being yourself. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Nero, thank you very much for this time in Fosbury Flop. I have enjoyed so much and it has been a pleasure to see with uh, all the passion you communicate, how do you transmit, how do you pass your ideas. So thank you very much. Well, thanks to you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to have this uh, chat with you. From nowadays, I hope that coaches have a, a little bit, a, a clear, more clear ideas or less blurry mind about how to help 
their players, their team to be more creative, to be more adaptable and why to do it. Mm. Thank you very much, Vero. Yeah, thanks. It cut a little bit. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Vero. Uh, it has been a pleasure and you are welcome whenever you want to come back. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe one day we'll meet in person. Who knows? I hope so. <laughs> okay. Have a great evening. Go to fosbriflop.blog to check the notes of the episode, its written version, and much more content. If you want to support the project through the website, you can make Fosbury Flop possible and check what benefits you get.